to Soul Conversations, a podcast where two Korean adoptees unpack what it means to be Asian and adopted by discussing culture, race, history, and sharing adoptee stories. I'm Benny. And I'm Shanae. This week, we are joined by reporter and journalist Angela Kim. She is a fellow Korean adoptee living in Chattanooga, Tennessee, reporting for WRCB in Chattanooga. And she and Shanae go way back. Angela, welcome. Thank you, guys. It's great to be here today. Thanks for joining us. Angela, you and I have known each other since we were practically babies. Yeah, no, we honestly, I don't even fully remember um, our memories together because we were so little. <laughs> um, but I always like think back and I'm like, oh my goodness, Shanae. But like baby me is like, that was a long time ago. <laughs> Yeah, and I think the only reason that I really am able to remember is because my mom had pictures and videos of us at your house uh, as little kids sitting, you know, on the couch or running around. And the way that Angela's parents and my parents know each other is because both of our dads used to work for UPS and my parents adopted me first. But when Angela's parents had started talking about adoption, I think that they had reached out to my parents or somehow they connected and my parents shared the process that they went through before Angela's parents started to file the paperwork to adopt her. Yeah, no, I think I remember um, my mom and your mom used to talk a lot about that stuff. And then we were only a couple years apart, but I know you were saying there was a family video of like you trying to braid my hair and my head was like moving all over and you were like, oh, <laughs> And you're both representing upstate New York, correct? Yeah. <laughs> Angela, even a little more upstate than me. Upstate New York. Woo. Yeah, I, I loved it up there. You know, the winters were a little rough, but the people were awesome, like Shanae. And Angela, you bounced around a little bit. You were also in Wisconsin for a couple of years. <laughs> um, so we oh, were yeah. talking earlier, and I was excited to hear another Scani out there for a little bit. Oh, yeah. Beer and cheese curds. I am all about that life. <laughs> Wait, did you just say Scani? Yes, don't hate me for that. Is that what you guys call yourselves? Unfortunately. It could be <laughs> a pr- point of pride. I don't want to rub any anybody the wrong way or harsh feelings. But uh, yeah, we have some isms, if you will, in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I always called myself a Wisconsinite, but like I've heard yeah. Scani too. Did you ever... Angela, do you eat fish? And did you ever do a fish fry in Wisconsin? <laughs> I love fish. I had never had fish fry until I went to Wisconsin. And then I went out with some gal pals one night, and they were all Wisconsin born and raised. And so they were like, Ange, if you're living in Wisconsin, you got to try it. And I got to yes. say, it was it was pretty great. Like, I understand the hype behind Friday fish fry. <laughs> yes. A lot of lakes. Oh, yeah. A lot of, lakes a lot of beautiful lakes. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yes. I feel like a lake snob now because now I look at a lake <laughs> and I'm like, that water's not as clean as the Wisconsin lake. And I'm like, Angela, don't be a lake snob. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. It is true. I love our lakes. How do they compare to the Finger Lakes? You know, the Finger Lakes are pretty great. Like Scanny Idolist Lake, that's the one I vividly remember. Like it, it adds up pretty well, in my opinion. Yeah. And all the wineries are definitely an added bonus, too. Oh my goodness, they're so pretty. And I remember like, as soon as I got my ID, when I turned 21, I was like, winery tour. And my mom was like, let's go. Yeah, I feel like it's a rite of passage if you grow up near the Finger Lakes that when you turn 21, you get your friends and get a DD or rent a party bus and you all go and do wine tastings for the afternoon. (laughs) Oh gosh, it sounds so snooty and like bougie when I say that. 
Yeah, you New Yorkers up there. <laughs> yeah, it sounds so bougie, but like I went to Ithaca College. I went back up to upstate New York because I missed it so much. And yeah, so many of my pals when they turned 21 or even when they were seniors and it was graduation week, they were like, you know what we need? We need a wine tour around the lakes. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awesome, though. I, yeah, I'm it jealous. was really fun. <laughs> so, Angela, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to our viewers and Maybe tell them a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your adoption, and help them get to know you better. Yeah, sure. So I was adopted from Anyang, South Korea, when I was about three months old. Um, I always used to joke to people and be like, oh, I had such jet lag on that plane ride, and my mom never got the joke. She'd be like, you were three months old. I'd be like, that's the joke, mom. Babies can't get jet lag. And she'd be like, oh, that is funny. And I'd be like, you don't have to humor me. It's fine. Um <laughs> But yeah, so like Shanae said, I um, flew into New York City and I grew up in upstate New York, which is how Shanae and I knew each other. And then eventually we started kind of just hopping around the country. So we moved to Florida first and then we moved to North Carolina. Then I moved back to upstate New York for college while my mom stayed in North Carolina. Uh, Then I jumped out to Wisconsin for my first job. And now I am in Tennessee. Um, So lots of jumping around. I lived in San Francisco a little bit too, but it's really fun. And it's kind of all part of the gig of being a journalist too. And I I knew early on in high school that journalism was something that I was interested in because anytime I did a class project, they were like, you can choose what kind of project to do. I I always would do a video report. And then I was like, huh, maybe maybe I should look into this field. (laughs) So um, yeah, I ended up majoring in journalism. I really, really enjoyed it. I went into the broadcasting aspect of everything. So when I was in Wisconsin, that was my first news job. And I got to be a morning anchor, which was so much fun. And now I am in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I am a reporter and a fill-in anchor. So it's been a journey and a journey with a lot of moving boxes. But (laughs) it's been a really fun journey. And my mom is still in North Carolina. I have an older sister who is biologically related to my mom and then a younger sister who is also adopted but her and I are not biologically related so none of us really look alike and the Christmas cards are always really fun Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but yeah it's been a it's been a pretty cool journey so far question for you Angela sure Um, so morning show what time do you have to wake up and get to the office by to make sure that (laughs) goes on I'm always curious Um, (laughs) You know, it was like you'd get into the office at one thirty in the morning, but you'd be done by like 10 a.m. So as crazy as it sounds, it was really, really refreshing to like be done with work and have a full day ahead of you full of sunshine and like things to do. So like I could book my doctor appointments for any day of the week and not book them on my weekend. And I could go and sit by a Wisconsin lake all day and be like, oh, I don't have to go to bed until 6 p.m. And it's so funny, though, because... So many of my friends would be like, who wants to go to happy hour? I'd be like, sorry, I have to go to bed. (laughs) But it's it's definitely an early shift and it's an adjustment. But once you kind of make the most out of it, it's a it's a blast. Yeah, and I'm sure you probably build that camaraderie with other people on your shift that are going through the same thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. We call ourselves the AM ladies, (laughs) all the girls (laughs) that were on that shift. And we'd all meet up and it'd be so funny because we'd like be like shots and then by like on a weekend by like 9 p.m we'd all be like we're really tired this is way past our bedtime so Angela I'm curious because I grew up as an only child but both Benny and our guest from last week Patrick they both grew up with siblings who were 
adopted from Korea and you have a younger sister who's adopted from Korea. So I'm curious what your experience was growing up with another adoptee in the house. Yeah, um, it was a great experience. I think, you know, um, because my older sister, she's fairly older than me. She was in college, like graduating from college when I was adopted. So there definitely was an age gap there. And I remember my mom and dad telling me that I really wanted a little sister. I kept being like, I want a little sister. Let's name her Angela Jr. And my parents were like, we're not going to name her that. But okay, we'll look into it. So we ended up adopting Anna. That's her name. And it was really great. And it's so funny because we both are Korean. So we do have some similar features. But you know, for anyone that can really look at, you know, Asian face facial features, we really don't look related at all. And personality wise, we are on totally opposite spectrums, too. So it's definitely Yeah, it's definitely very fascinating. Because sometimes people in public presume we're sisters and other times people are shocked by it. It's so interesting because we knew a couple other Korean adopted families when I was growing up. And I remember that for some of them, before the family decided to adopt um, a younger sibling, the agencies would request a baby picture of the older child who was an adoptee. And they would try to deliberately match features. So the kids would, you know, sort of look alike. Um, But then you have, you know, families like you and Anna, who you look nothing alike. Um, So it's just so interesting to see how all of these different families came together. Yeah, and it's such a great um, dynamic, too, I feel like, you know, it's, it's always just so interesting to see these different families and how diverse they can be, but also how close they can be, you know, and I, I love the kind of symbolism behind it that, you know, a family doesn't always mean a biological family. You know, I think there's so many unique ways to have a family. And I've noticed as an adoptee and with other adoptee friends, um, adoptee people are so quick to be like, oh my God, you're like a sister to me. Or, oh my goodness, you're like a brother to me. Or, oh my goodness, you're like a father to me. But I think adopted people kind of set an awesome example of family can really be friends, uncles, aunts, you know, or just people that mean a lot to in your life. And I think it's a really beautiful mantra to kind of carry along with you wherever you go. Mm -hmm. That idea of chosen family over blood family and how a chosen family can be just as meaningful and important. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great message. And I think it's so, so great, too, because, you know, even when people will be like, oh, my goodness, like you two are adopted we're like oh yeah we are <laughs> like i forgot about that yeah <laughs> because you know it just feels like so natural of a family and it's so weird for us to explain like oh she was adopted from seoul i was adopted from anyang you know like two very different things but the universe brought us together and it's it's been great mm-hmm. and you went to heritage camps as a kid too right I did. I did. I went to um, a Korean adoptee camp and it was pretty great. I went when I was a kid until I was a teenager. And it was essentially a camp where a bunch of Korean adoptees would come together and learn about Korean heritage and Korean culture. So there would be classes of making mandu or learning how to play Korean drums or we got to um, act out a Korean wedding once or learn the (laughs) Korean language, you know, all kinds of really cool stuff. But It definitely made me feel more connected to my culture because, you know, there's always a bit of a divide. I wouldn't say a divide, but there's always a bit of a thing where 
when you're with someone who has grown up in an Asian family versus growing up in an adopted family, it's so crazy because on some senses, people that grew up in an Asian family can be like, oh, so you know all about mandu and bulgogi and yada yada. And you're like, there's still some things I don't know. Whereas with people who aren't adopted or aren't Asian at all, they're like, oh my God, teach me everything. So it was a really nice balance with that camp to be able to feel educated about my culture enough to the point of if I say, for example, went to Korea one day, I wouldn't be a fish out of water. There was not that camp, I believe, in Wisconsin. <laughs> um, we had vacation Bible school, though, as for when I, I remember going to that in the summer. But basically, for me, it was a good time to do arts and crafts and meet girls from the town over. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think it went through like eighth grade, eighth grade. So I don't know. I, I but I wish. Um, yeah, we had some kind of camp like that in Wisconsin, but uh, maybe are there was. Like, are you like calling yourself an eighth grade stud, Benny? Or like, is that the vibe I'm picking up here? No, I was just a normal kid. I was a normal kid. <laughs> you know, well, when you grow up in a small town, though, like, you know, it's not to say it's bad, but like you, there's literally, you run out of options, you know, if someone's taken. So <laughs> meeting yeah. someone from next town over sometimes, you know, yeah. it's necessity. More fish in the sea for you. I get it. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, uh, Angela, you uh, studied journalism in college and you did a project about adoption. There's No Place That's Home documentary. What's that about? Yeah. So I was really into journalism in college. And the great thing about Ithaca is they have a very extensive journalism program. So I got to take a class called Documentary Journalism. And our teacher at the beginning of the class he was like, you know, you guys are going to make a documentary in a three-month time span, and you need to make this be something that you are just insanely passionate about, you know, because documentary work, it really can be incredibly draining if it's not a topic that you are ready to delve into every facet of and learn everything about, because they can be fairly long, and they're full of just information. So when he said that, the first thing that popped into my head was adoption. I was like, obviously, you know, this is something that is such a big part of me. It speaks to my soul. And it's something that I feel educated about to an extent. But it is also something I could afford to learn a lot more about because it is so important to me. So originally, what I wanted to do is I wanted to do a documentary um, essentially reuniting all of these Korean adoptees that were on my plane when I flew over with the Korean women that sat on the plane and literally traveled from Korea to America with the babies on their laps, dropped us off, and then flew back to Korea. Like, they were just women like this, and they were insanely incredible. But then my my teacher was like, you have three months to do this, do this documentary. And I was like, okay, not realistic. All right, <laughs> we'll do a 180. So I started to research things a little more, and I really got interested in adoptee citizenship rights. So I started to look into it and I started to kind of reach out to these different organizations that were very huge advocates for adoptee rights, uh, more specifically the adoptee rights campaign. So I started to learn a lot about it. And what fascinated me is that around the year 2000, 2001, there was something called the Childhood Citizenship Act that was passed into law. And essentially, it meant that any foreign-born, biological, or adopted children of the U.S. were able to automatically become U.S. citizens, which sounds like a dream because, you know, applying for citizenship with an adopted child can definitely be a hassle. But there was one catch to it. And the catch was that children who were born 
before February of 1983 were not eligible. This did not apply to them. But when, you know, the act went out, the general reaction was, oh my goodness, that's amazing from parents, you know, I don't need to do anything. My kids are good to go, which wasn't the case. So especially over the last four years when there was an increased pressure on immigration and getting immigrants out of the U.S., that is when a lot of adopted kids that were born before 1983 realized, shoot, I'm not a U.S. citizen. Or they would realize it as they were applying to college or trying to make these big monumental steps in their lives in America. So some of these kids would go on vacation and come back and not be able to be allowed into the country. Others went into hiding. Others, their parents may have passed away or they had um, a strained relationship with their adopted parents. So they lost a citizenship paperwork and they weren't able to actually apply for U.S. citizenship. It was a really wide range of things, but it affected so many adoptees. And I remember hearing about it and just being shocked because I was like, this is something I haven't seen in the news. It's something I haven't heard being talked about, even by the community of adoptees that I keep in touch with regularly. So I was like, I think this is the path to go to help get the word out. And citizenship for adoptees is an issue that we're still working on even today, I think, to grandfather in even more people who were missed during that act and um, even the more recent one in, in 2019 or 2020. Yeah, no, it's crazy that it's such a huge thing still. And again, it's really something that as a journalist, you know, working in mainstream media, I guess you could phrase it as, um, or, you know, because I work for NBC affiliates. That's what I've been doing the past couple of jobs. It's something that I really have not seen in the news at all. But again, it impacts so many adoptees and so many people. And also a big part of it, too, is a lot of people are scared to come forward and share their story because they are in hiding and they're like, if I give away too much about myself, I could be deported. So it was very much that hard balance of it's not talked about enough. It's hard finding people to talk about it. And it's a thing that is just something that, you know, people really need to learn about adoption to understand the the core essential issue, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So speaking of being in the news and coverage, you have been an Asian American reporter, more specifically a female Asian American reporter for a while and through all of this and particularly through the last four years of the Trump administration. And you've covered things like deportation and sexual harassment and anti-Asian hate. What has that experience, especially in the last four years, been like for you? You know, going into news, I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little nervous out of college. Um, Because like you said, it was when Trump was elected. And obviously, big retorts from him were China virus and fake news. And, you know, there were phrases tossed around about disrespect towards women even. And I was kind of, and even stuff about immigration as well. And it was something that I was like, these are things that I cannot change about myself. Like these are just parts of my identity. Like I am a woman. I am an immigrant. I am a news reporter and I am an Asian American person. So it was very, very nerve wracking. And it was also I got to a point where I was getting very frustrated with myself because I felt like 
As journalists, we're always trained to be very unbiased and to not express opinion. And the, the point of journalism is to kind of lay out the facts and lay out both sides of the story and to let people make educated decisions from the information you give them in an unbiased fashion, which I really do support. Like, I, I really do believe in educating people and letting them form opinions from their own intelligence. And I think that's a very respectable aspect. But it was also very frustrating because, you know, we would share stories about news reporters getting attacked or, you know, an increase in violence or even during the Atlanta shooting, it was really, really tough. And I would always be in my head and be like, I know my truth. I know what is right. I know that I am more than the um, stereotypes that are being thrown around about these identities that are quite honestly being thrown into politics as well. But I was always at a, a mentality of, I really, really hope people that watch this are understanding my perspective. And I was always a fear of, I don't know if they do. I don't think they do. And quite honestly, they may not care to learn this stuff. And so it was a very conflicting thing of, I wish I could just go outright and say, hey, I am so many of these things that are being politicized and I don't think I am what all these people are saying I am in a negative connotation. But at the same time, I was trying so hard to be professional as well. Was there ever a time when you were out covering a story or maybe out researching a story that you found yourself suddenly feeling unsafe? Well, you know, I, I always, um, the nice thing was in Wisconsin, I was always behind a desk with my co-anchor Marissa. So I was always in our studio, essentially. I was never really out and about a ton. There definitely were some times before I became the morning anchor when I was a reporter, when there was harassment and there was verbatim said and things like that. And yeah, and quite honestly, I would get really, really nervous. And I'd be like, man, like, <laughs> I hope things are okay, you know, but then here in Tennessee, our news director has a really great policy where you cannot go live without having somebody else with you. So that is really nice. Especially it was really nice during election season as well in 2020. Um, we weren't allowed to go live at all. We had security guards during election week to just make sure in case no one would try to attack us. And that was really great. But, you know, it always did cross my mind of if I was out here alone, like I used to be in Wisconsin every now and then, you just never know. You really never know. And especially with the rhetoric of a China virus. And then when cases started to go up and more people started to die, I was like, it's one thing to get shady looks in a grocery store and have people avoid you. But it's another thing to know you're, you are an Asian news reporter talking about the coronavirus and there's people around you that genuinely do believe it is the China virus and it could be your fault. You know, it's a very scary thought of, I am looking at a camera, I am focusing my attention on the camera in front of me. I have no idea if someone is coming up from behind me and they could just whack me in the head if they wanted to. Or And, and you know, um, attacks on reporters have also gone up. A, I don't know how much, but we've seen more attacks on reporters as well. You know, we've seen people go up and try to grab the cameras or, you know, during the Capitol riots, they, tried, they grabbed camera gear and they started to stomp on it and throw it in a pile and, and things like that. So it's definitely a thing where it's something that you shouldn't have to worry about, but it does cross your mind. Did either of you feel extra aware when you went to the grocery store when COVID started? I felt that... Um... 
you know, there's definitely some more microaggressions going on. When I was going grocery shopping, when when the pandemic first came and hit, did either of you have that experience? Yeah. Oh, definitely. And I think also too, I think it was just terrifying going into a grocery store and knowing like, because I was in Wisconsin and I was, my family is in North Carolina. So I was like, realistically, I am living completely on my own out here. So if someone decided to follow me home or, (laughs) or do something out of fear, it's pretty scary. And yeah, I definitely would notice just like people would pull their mask up even more when they would see me, but not other people in the grocery store, or they would see me and move their car out of the way and, and give me extra space, but not other people too. And it's kind of a thing where it's, it's so incredibly subtle, which I think is a great representation of the racism Asian Americans face is it's always, not always, but for the most part, it can be fairly subtle, but it is noticeable. And it is bad. Mm -hmm. I know since the pandemic started, um, I haven't really gone out to get groceries by myself. I usually make a point to go with my husband, especially now just because I'm pregnant. So it's really hard to maneuver around. But even before then, I would make sure that I, you know, to the best of my ability, wasn't alone. And it wasn't that we had a conversation where I said outright, I need you to come with me because I'm afraid that I'm in danger or that I'm going to get attacked. But in the back of my mind, that was, I think, the huge motivation for me making sure that I said things like, when are we going to get groceries this weekend Um, to really sort of emphasize that in my mind, I was not going to be going out alone. We had a conversation earlier this week. We were talking about trying to name off who we knew that was an anchor or journalist that's prominently in the news, I should say. Yeah. Uh, but we really couldn't name that much. But do you feel uh, hopeful or enthusiastic about you know potentially that changing in the future? Yeah. I mean, it's so crazy. You know, when I try to think of stuff too, the first person I thought of was Juju Chang. She is, I think, one of the first Korean Americans to be on a big national network on ABC. And she's also awesome. I love watching her all the time. But yeah, and we were also talking about how it's really hard to find male Asian anchors on like really big national networks too. And it's so crazy when you think about it because I think back and I'm like, man, you know, as a little girl, I wish I had had someone to watch growing up that kind of looked a lot like me. And, you know, I remember in Wisconsin, it didn't even cross my mind. But one one day someone was like, you know do you ever think that maybe um, a little Asian girl is watching you somewhere and getting really inspired to see someone that looks like her on TV? And it just never crossed my mind. And I was like, oh my God, like I need to use this job to really help spread representation. And I know a lot of other people have that mentality too. And it's it's so crazy because I I do think it is starting to get better. I think it is starting to get better. I think we are seeing more Asian people on media platforms, especially when it comes to news. But I think we could do better. You know, I think we could definitely do better in the sense of showing, because the Asian community is so incredibly diverse too. You know, when people think Asia, I think they think Korean, Chinese, Japanese, but it's so much more than that. And it's not necessarily just people who look Korean with black hair and, you know, pale skin and are super petite. I think while we are seeing more women like that, what I really want to see is Asian people of all body shapes. You know, I I, I was thinking, 
And I've never seen an Asian woman on the news who wasn't super, super petite. And I think that's a very big stereotype, for example, for Asian women is that they're small, they're petite. And that is where a lot of the um, sexualizing and racism kind of plays into it too. But, you know, I'm like, I really would love to see all kinds of Asian people of different bodies, different, you know, skin tones, different ethnicities on the screen so people can see the wide range and the beauty that is behind Asian culture. Mm -hmm. And speaking of beauty standards, you know, I think it's difficult to be a woman. I think it's more difficult to be a woman in the public eye, regardless of your race. But being Asian American especially with Western beauty standards and more traditional Asian beauty standards and the sexualization and fetishization of Asian women, how do you navigate that as an Asian woman who's in the public eye almost every day? (laughs) Oh, man, it's stressful. Um, (laughs) I just remember in college, you know, I was interning in San Francisco and I looked at all of the female anchors and I was like, all of these girls are blonde, they're tall, they have huge eyes, perfect teeth. And I was like, I'm never going to be one of those girls. But like, is this a standard for what it means to be in news? Like, do I need to look a certain way to get to the top? And not even necessarily to, you know, a big city, but just to kind of get respect. And so I remember I was really grappling with that. I was really insecure. I was constantly looking at myself in the mirror and being like, oh my goodness, Angela, like your eyes are droopy and you have bags and, you know, your smile is a little weird and so many things that looking back, I wish I could have just told myself like, hey, you're in college, you're tired. Those bags are from studying all night. Like it's not from (laughs) anything else. But I was reading this article too one day. Yeah, I was reading this article one day too. And I was trying to get this reassurance because one big thing for me is I was like, do I need to get my eyes done? Do they need to be better? Because when I get tired, one of my eyes gets a little droopy. And I was like, Oh, my God, I was like, no one is ever going to hire me. Like, I'm, I'm hideous. I didn't say that. But like, it was going on in my head. And so I was looking into eye surgery. And then I started to Google like, do Asian anchors or reporters get eye surgery. And I remember one of the first articles I came across was about an Asian woman who also had like mildly slanted eyes. And I looked at her original picture and I was like, oh my God, she's beautiful. And then it showed her afterwards when she got a bit of like an eye lift, I guess. And the article was saying after she got her eye surgery, she got more job offers and more people reached out to her and she started making bigger jumps in her job. And I was like, I remember just reading that and feeling incredibly heartbroken. And I was like, man, like how much of a sacrifice is it going to be to be in news? And luckily, I came across a female Asian anchor who was exactly my height, beautiful, incredibly intelligent and really smart. And I was listing off all of my insecurities to her. And I was like, do I need to change this? Do I need to change this? Do I need to wear heels? Do I need to lose weight? And she was like, calm down. I think you're overanalyzing yourself. I see nothing wrong. You're also still 20, 21 years old and your body is still growing. Your face is still changing and your voice will be changing, you know, as you get older too. So she was like, you just need to accept that about yourself, not change anything. And she was like, look at me. And I am in San Francisco, which is a a top 10 market, which is incredibly hard to get to. And she's amazing. Her name is Kristen Z. And I, 
I love her oodles. And so eventually I really thought about it. I would regret so much if one day I have a daughter or if a little Asian girl who just watched me on TV came up to me and was like, I want to be just like you. And I couldn't be like, well, good, because this is just me as a person. I didn't have to change myself because I knew if I had changed myself, I would regret the example I would set for Asian women, especially in a time when beauty standards are so insane. It's been interesting too. We talked a lot about your profession in journalism and in the media and the news, but also in pop culture more recently, we've had kind of a flux of a lot of Asian material. For example, um, a lot of great movies came out in the last couple of years, <laughs> I feel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, K-pop is starting to become, I feel, a little more acceptable and listened to among a broader audience, all those things. That's been interesting though. What does everyone feel about the representation? In that aspect. I mean, I was at um, the Asian American Journalist Association when Crazy Rich Asians came out. We actually got an early screening and we got to see it before it was in theaters. And let me tell you, I have never been in such a hype movie theater before. Like you could just, the second people started watching the movie and just seeing all these different Asian characters breaking these boundaries and not being, you know, just the Asian character, but they were exploring the complexities of being Asian American versus Asian. And you could just tell it everyone in the room, it was like a breath of fresh air for them. Like they were just like, Oh my goodness, this is amazing. Like people were posing by the movie poster after it was done. They were screaming, crying, uh, cheering. <laughs> I like, I remember seeing Harry Shum Jr. on the screen and I like screamed and grabbed the guy next to me and he was this really professional journalist and I was like, I'm so sorry, <laughs> I'm really excited. <laughs> um, but, you know, just being able to see more representation like that, it's such a great way to kind of let people understand Asian culture more and Asian American culture more and also understand that we are so much more than our culture too. And we are more than just those cliche Asian characters. For example, like Breakfast and Tiffany's, just the angry Asian neighbor yelling all the time. Or for example, even like London Tipton in The Sweet Love of Zach and Cody, where she's not smart at all. She's actually really dumb and really, um, really prissy and things. You know, it was just really great to see these Asian people break outside of those stereotypes and just really start to make a name for themselves and bring awareness to the culture in a very healthy way. Yeah. Full disclosure, I have a hard time watching movies when I want to. Usually it comes out of like randomness and I'll put a movie on. But if I have to make a list, then I don't watch them. So I've only seen Parasite. But I, like everyone else that saw it for the first time, was just blown away by the storyline and all the, the things that go on, and just in case people haven't seen it yet. But I thought that was a breath of fresh air. I echo what you said, Angela, just, just to see Koreans represented more. And I was so excited that it won some major awards. And at the same time, what I thought, you know, I was thinking about this, I thought was in, really interesting was I still couldn't relate to the characters in a way because, again, I grew up in a very different culture and had a different experience. But it was <laughs> also a good time to celebrate i think so it was it was interesting how i think that manifested inside of me like oh i can't relate to this movie i probably react in the same way my friends are and maybe not as hyped as i should be but at the same time really happy and excited to see that it's finally getting attention and something that's a little more authentic yeah it's been so refreshing to just see authentic people playing authentic roles and it's also really nice to see 
Asian people actually being cast for roles, one, that aren't just Asian roles, and two, for actual Asian roles. Like, I don't know if you guys saw that movie when Emma Stone was supposed to play an Asian, but that I was like, are you kidding me? Like, you're right. And even now she makes fun of herself and she's like, that was stupid, a stupid casting call. <laughs> but um, yeah. it is very refreshing to see, you know, media outside of news work that way. And I think we are going to see the news aspect of the media really start to move that way as well, especially when it comes to Asian American representation. Since the Atlanta attacks, I've noticed because we have these things called the NBC orbits where stations for NBC all over the country put in their top stories and you can pick what you want to put inside your show. And I have noticed there's a lot more stuff on hate crimes that are happening to Asian American people. So, you know, I've seen so many things now of, which is sad, but I've seen so many more things of elderly Asian people getting attacked and um, a lot of follow-up stuff to the Atlanta shooting There was even a great article by NBC about how the idea of being a sex addict over something being a hate crime has actually been used a lot by white men as a way to get out of serving a harder sentence. And it's been so refreshing, though. And I, I see these things and I'm like, yes, like this is what I need. This gives me the closure that it's not all in my head, that when I'm fetishized, it's a very real thing. And it comes from a very real background of racism and sexual sexualization that really can have harmful effects. And it wasn't just me being up in my head and crazy. But now that I see this is a thing and this is what it leads to in the news, I feel like almost I have more closure with myself and my identity. Before we wrap things up, Angela, do you have any like wild and crazy news reporter stories, either just an absolutely like hilarious or random story that you needed to cover or an odd situation that you were put in as a reporter? Oh, man. I mean, there's so many different categories. That's the great thing about news is every day is a new day and it is a completely different day and you have no idea what's in store until your morning meeting at 930 a.m. You know, some of my crazy stories is the art. You know, I got to go snowmobiling in Wisconsin. I got to cover snowshoe baseball. Uh, Benny may or may not know what that is. So much I, Okay, now hold on. Pause, pause, pause. Okay. What did you all do? You did uh, snowmobiling? Snowshoe baseball? Yeah, okay. So snowshoe baseball. Snowshoe baseball. So it's crazy, but you know, even though snowshoes are used in the wintertime, you actually play it in the summertime. And it's essentially a field full of wood chips. And you try to play baseball well in snowshoes. And it is a crazy, hectic, glorious mess. And it yeah. was started by this tiny town called like Tomahawk. But it's such oh, a yeah. tradition that the the stands just fill up with people every game. And it's like it's like the town's Thanksgiving almost, where they just all love it so much. And everyone tries to go. And the parking lots are full. People are parking down the streets. All these women make homemade pies to sell. It's, it's a blast. <laughs> I feel like that must be a regional thing because I've never heard that before. Well, Benny, um, you should play it sometime. <laughs> pretty great. <laughs> You'll have to teach me. Also, I have people that... Vacation in Tomahawk because it's a it's a very beautiful lake. There's a lot of lakes there, and people vacation in the summer. I'm going to fact check you and 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 see if it's true or not. Okay, yeah, <laughs> no, you totally should. It's awesome. I'm, it's so much I'm fun. Just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure it's a blast. Like I, I definitely now. I'm going to try to get my friends to do that. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be a lot of falling. Just in, just a warning, but 
it's it's all in good fun. I have fallen on my face playing it many times, and I <laughs> I had so much fun with it. And I I will say too, just kind of on a more serious note, um, the day of the Atlanta shootings, I was so insanely impressed with how newsrooms across the country handled that. Um, you know, in my I can speak from my own experience, but in my newsroom, uh, my news director, we were talking about it and we were like, this is something really important. And we need to get the voices of Asian American people and really show their pain and show why this is not OK. So my news director, her name is Callie. She was like, Angela, I feel like this is a story that you need to do that you'll do best at. Are you OK doing it? And I said, yes. And so I ended up talking to an Asian American woman. She Grew up in Atlanta, but lived in Chattanooga now. And it was amazing. It was almost like therapy for me to be able to tell her story on a day that was really painful for a lot of people in the Asian American community. But it was just so incredible to, you know, have coworkers pulling me aside all day and going, hey, I just want to check in on you. Are you doing okay? You know, I see the BS these cops are saying that it, you know, wasn't racism. But just so you know, like I'm here for you. And I support you. And after my story aired, my news director texted me and was like, I'm so incredibly proud of you. I know this is, this is a hard subject and know that we are a community. We support you. And if it ever gets too hard, feel free to tap out. Like we care about you guys being okay doing this more than the story itself. And I was, I was in touch with a couple of other Asian American news reporters and they said that all of their newsrooms were the same and they were just so, so supportive and just really caring about the people and the Asian American community genuinely to a beautiful effect. Um, and it was just, I think that was a day when I was like, this is an awesome job and these are awesome people. Yeah, that sounds like an incredible environment to be working in. And the fact that your director was able to recognize that you were probably, as an Asian American journalist, the most appropriate person to cover that story but that she still checked in with you to make sure that you were okay doing that and didn't just assume. I think that was really great. It's awesome. And it's really great to see that newsrooms are this supportive and also that bigger stations like NBC, like the national part of NBC are like, okay, this is an issue that has gone unaddressed for too long. Let's start to talk about it. And I think starting that conversation through these news stories of saying, hey, this stuff is still happening across the country um, of people just getting harassed or experiencing racism because of just being Asian. I think it's such an important conversation to have. And I think seeing it on the news more is going to really have a great effect in the long run. So to that effect, even going beyond the coverage of anti-Asian hate and Asian representation, do you sense that there is a change that's happening in the news? Is there a shift that's happening? Where do you think that we're headed from here? Well, you know, I, I talked about this a little earlier, and we talked about how in journalism, it's really important to be unbiased and to tell a story in an unbiased fashion and to just, you know, not express opinion as much as you can. But I have really noticed, especially over the last four years, is that journalists who are minorities or people that are in a community that needs to be represented, they really aren't holding back as much as they used to, where you used to just be like, this happened, see the full story tonight at six. Whereas now, I feel like I see so many more people saying, this is not okay, or this is horrendous, or I'm disgusted by this. You know, I saw it a lot with George Floyd. I saw it a lot with the Capitol riots, especially. 
And I saw it a lot with the Atlanta shooting as well. So I think it's still going to be a good balance of giving information from both sides, letting people make an educated decision, but also as someone representing that community or really being able to tell that story, setting an example saying, I understand this is a bad thing. I'm not saying that it isn't. And as a human being, I'm not okay with it. Or essentially that you don't need to watch the news and see that I am being neutral about something that is a part of my identity. You can watch it, see I'm a little bothered by it, and also be bothered by it and learn what to do and that you can feel upset and it is okay to to do that. You don't have to bottle it all up. And I think that is a very healthy message that journalists are starting to get across to other people in a way that, you know, is an extreme in a sense of, if you support yada yada, then you're a terrible person. You know, it's not like a <laughs> like a Thanksgiving talk about politics or something. I think it's more of a, I am an Asian woman and I understand that I reach thousands of people every day on their televisions and I am setting an example and not being a bystander when it comes to things that are truly a part of my core and my identity. Just seeing journalists after the Atlanta shootings literally quote tweet stuff and say, this is something that shouldn't be tolerated. This is something that cannot happen. You know, it, it gives a little power back to both the journalist and I think also to the Asian American community, you know, them saying, okay, even the people on my TV understand my pain. And I can not only watch the news and see both sides and make my own opinion, but I can also empathize because I'm feeling what they seem to be feeling as well on TV or on social media. Yeah, um, I try to be really intentional on watching several different news sites from both sides. And I do appreciate when journalists do a really great job of uh, presenting the facts and letting the people decide what you're, what you're talking about, Angela. But I have seen more recently that journalists and people in the news have been reposting things like that, that do share a different side of their personal life that is affecting them. So I also respect that there is also a time that we never should ever have where I think it is appropriate for someone to say, this is hateful and dangerous and we will be buttoned up on the news, but also there will be times where it's the right thing to do to stand up and go against that. Yeah, I think it's a great balance of We will always report things ethically. We will always tell you the facts. We will never tell you something that is wrong. But at the same time, we will acknowledge that we are human. And we will acknowledge that on days when something happens that, like I said, is so crucial to our core and to our identity, we're not going to act unfazed and unbothered by it and act like that perfect person that can brush it off and put a smile on their face. Because I think at the end of the day, too, bottling these things up and not having these conversations can be a dangerous method. So I think it's a great example of I'm upset. I am rationally telling you what happened and giving you both sides of the story and giving you informed and educated facts about things. And I am not interjecting my own opinion into the story itself. But as a person and a human being, setting an example for anyone that may be watching, this is how I set that example as a human being. Well, Angela, thank you so much for sitting down and joining us for this episode. It's been so great just talking to you about such a wide array of topics and also just getting the chance to catch up. If you would like to follow Angela on 
social media. You can find her at Angela Kim WRCB. And you can also follow us at Soul Conversations. And of course, you can email us at soulconversationspodcast at gmail.com. Well, thank you. And and thank you for having me. It's been a blast. Um, and yeah, it's been awesome getting to talk about so many important things that hopefully people will listen and, and go, oh, I want to learn more about that. Benny, do you want to share what we're talking about next week? Yes. Hold on. Sinead, you should just say it because I need to pull the notes. <laughs> Benny, you picked this topic. Next week, we're talking about dating and relationships. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So we'll hear all of Benny's stories from church camp when he was in eighth grade. <laughs> yeah, no, it's probably going to be all of three minutes because struck out all the time. Struck out like snowshoe baseball. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Cool. That's awesome, though. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you here next week. Bye, everyone. Bye.